0: You know, uh, it's been a while since Scott and Jennifer have been around town. He's been busy raising a family. It's so nice, though, for you to see the work of your labor. You know, as we're meeting right now, we have kids in our Sunday school. And uh, the teachers are working hard with them. They're trying to plant God's word in their life. And uh, when they graduate, they sometimes go off to college. Uh, We don't see them sometimes. but. uh, Scott is Exhibit A, his wife Jennifer, of, of what we're trying to do here in our church. We're trying to raise up the next generation. Right now we're trying to reclaim America, aren't we? Scott's written a book, The Five Laws of Liberty, and I asked him to bring some of them with him, and after the service he'll be out there. To, you can pick up some, a copy or some copies, and he'll sign them for you. But uh, it's about the founding uh, documents of our country, how our country was founded upon the principles of the Bible, and, and that's what made America great. And so there are a lot of people in our world today that, that are calling America back to God. Scott is one of them, and we're awful proud of him, and we're happy to have him in our church today. So let's, uh, let's give him a welcome, okay?
1: Thank you. Well... That was a tremendous compliment, and I can tell you last night I got to spend some time with uh, the church here, and one of the things that I said was I arrived uh, early, and I got to walk around the parking lot and just look across the hill at uh, our old South Host Christian School. It brought back a lot of memories, some some good memories and uh, some not-so-good memories, just uh, just the way that the Lord could work through a person. That, that was a tremendous compliment, and I, I truly appreciate it. Uh, I want to just give you a little bit of background of the five laws of liberty and give you a little bit of background of myself. My wife and I, we left Library Baptist Church, and it is kind of surreal for me to be back here. This is a place that uh, I grew up spiritually, and I see a lot of people in, in the uh, audience today that uh, had a tremendous impact upon me as a young man growing up, and I got to talk to Mr. Mussey before the service, and he still calls me Slugger, but uh, anyway, uh, it's just amazing, this is an amazing place uh, that you have here, and I'm thankful for the uh, decades of dedication from Pastor Arnold, but I want to give you a little bit of history from after we left, we went to Liberty University, I finished a BS in religion, then my wife and I went to Dallas Theological Seminary in Texas, I finished an MA in Biblical Studies, and then we ended up back in Lynchburg, where I've been the Bible Department head for the last 12 years. And as we get into this message, I kind of like that clip uh, from the movie. What was that, 300? Yes? No? Uh, I kind of like that clip. It kind of set a tone for, I think, this message. We live today in America, and America to me is still the greatest country in the world. But we live in ominous times, and there are certain things that have inspired me to write the message of this book. I have an image up here that we're all familiar with, uh, September 11th, 2001, and we're actually going to commemorate that 10-year anniversary here in a few weeks. On this day, every one of us knows we can recollect where we were. I happen to be teaching juniors in high school. We were called to an assembly with the entire school where our principal told us that there were two commercial airliners that had just slammed into the Twin Towers. I got to see the faces of young people just not really knowing what was going on in our country. And I can remember going home that evening, watching these images over and over again, thinking, what am I going to say as a Bible teacher to juniors in high school when I go into school tomorrow? The Lord just laid it upon my heart. I want you to talk about freedom. So I went in the next day and I just asked my students a question, "What is freedom? Let's define freedom." And one of my students, after a brief moment of silence, said, "Mr. Highland, Freedom's getting to do whatever you want to do." That's what a lot of people in our country think today. You agree with that?" And I snapped back and I said, "Do you really think that's true? Because if it is, we just justify what the 18 terrorists did the day before." And then there was just like a silence. And that really motivated me for the next five years to dig into Scripture, to dig into history. I have a few images up here that we're all familiar with in 1962 and 1963. Notorious landmark Supreme Court cases to eject prayer and Bible reading out of our schools. And I think that that was an attack within, whereas September 11th was an attack from outside. It's an attack on life. And so when we get into this today, I want to teach you five laws of liberty. I'd like you to be able to leave here today knowing these five laws, and I'm going to try to teach each one of them through an image that your mind can grab hold of to recall each of these five laws of liberty. just want to ask the question, what is freedom? And in my book, I have this long, detailed answer. Uh, I came to the conclusion that freedom is the responsible pursuit and preservation of life and no other system of belief accomplishes this better than Christianity. I happen to believe in the supremacy of Christianity. I happen to believe in the supremacy of Jesus Christ. I happen to believe that Jesus Christ is the only God. All right. So when you think of freedom, I want you to think of freedom as life. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to avoid sickness. We're trying to stay healthy. We're trying to avoid accidents. We're trying to avoid sinister plots against ourselves as well as our nation. When you think of freedom, I want you to think of life. How do we best preserve life? Maybe a better question is, why do we have to preserve life? And I think we can go all the way back to creation in the original fall of humanity. But I want to encourage you today. I, th- I think that we've become not just a nation, but a church that is biblically illiterate and we're historically dehydrated. I think one of the best ways to preserve history is by reading history. So, Why is it like this? Well, we're going to get into the first law of liberty, which is to remember the past. Do you think you can remember that? First law of liberty is to remember the past. First three chapters of my book, I get into the fireworks of freedom and how people misuse the word freedom, the revolution of responsibility, which places the responsibility of freedom back upon the individual, and then I get into the plural morality, which really gets into those people in our culture that are attacking freedom, but when you think of remembering the past, I want to ask you a question, and just answer it to yourselves as you're sitting there. If you want to jot down some notes, I would encourage you to do that. I'm trying to give you a biblical message that's biblically driven and historically, let's say historically reinforced, okay? When I go through scripture, can you recall any passages, and just answer to yourself, in scripture that talk about remembering? Does God ever command us to remember anything? Nod your head yes or no? And and think of some passages. I think of remember the Sabbath, right? How many times did God tell the Israelites, remember the exodus, remember how I delivered you? You know one thing that God tells the people of Israel over and over again, hey, remember I created this place, right? So I want you to think about that. We're going to go all the way back to creation because the first time remember is mentioned, I would like for you, if you have your Bibles, to turn to Genesis chapter 8 and verse 1. The first time the word remember is used, you have creation. After God creates the world and everything in it, he says to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. And then you have uh, this warning this law, don't eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And then the next major event in biblical history is the flood because of the fall, and because humanity had become so corrupt. It says in Genesis 8, 1, but God remembered Noah. So this is after the flood and all the wild animals and domestic animals that were with him in the ark, God caused the wind to blow over the earth. So I would like you to think of this as recreation. You with me? So he's delivered this family he tells them, just like he told Adam and Eve, if you just turn over a page of chapter 9, he tells them to be fruitful and multiply, and then he gives them a law. In the law that he gives to them in 9-6, Genesis 9-6, God says, hey, whoever sheds human blood by other humans must his blood be shed, that's capital punishment, for in God's image, God has made humankind. Well, this is amazing. So there's a link between being created, and freedom. There's a link between understanding if we're going to talk about a universal morality, we have to ground it in creation and our designer. And then here's our first law of liberty, 916. In the image I would like for you to grasp, 916, it says... God says, when the rainbow is in the clouds, I will notice it and remember the perpetual covenant between God and all the living creatures of all kinds that are on the earth. So when God sees the rainbow, and we could get into all kind of theology if you wanted to, God actually remembers the covenant that he formed with Noah that he's never gonna flood the earth again. He's never going to destroy humanity through a flood. So when you see the rainbow, I would like for you to recall that the first law of liberty is to remember the past. See, we have to go back before we can go forward. Now believe it or not, this is reinforced historically. Look what our founding fathers wrote into our most famous document in history, the Declaration of Independence. This blows me away. This is what they signed, 56 signers of the Declaration of Independence. I don't believe that they were atheists. And there's a lot of debate over that, but here's the thing. How do you sign a document when it says we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created? I like to stop there. They recognize the creator. Would you agree with that? There are three worldviews that every single person on the planet, you subscribe to one of them. You either believe there must be a God, you with me? That would be a monotheist. Uh, There might be a God, that would be someone considered an agnostic, or there must not be a God. You fall into one of those three categories. Which of the three do you think our founders fell into? There must be a God, that we're created equal. Now, here's where we're we're getting into some problems in our country today. We think this means equality of outcomes and distribution, redistribution of wealth. This is moral equality. This means that there's a universal justice, that God is looking out for people. We have unalienable unalienable rights that are God-given. Well, if you don't believe that there's a God, then you've just kind of uh, cut yourself because you don't have any type of universal guarantee. I happen to believe that there is. As the founders did, they also believed in absolute truth. This brings us to the second law of liberty. We hold these truths to be self-evident. The second law of liberty is to embrace the truth. And I want to give you another sign or symbol by which to remember uh, this principle, embrace the truth. Can you recall any passages, and again, you don't have to answer, I just want you to think to yourselves. Can you recall any passages in Scripture that talk about truth? If you've ever done a word study on truth, if you've never done one, I would encourage you to do one. Uh, You'll get all kind of hits if you're doing it on the Internet. Uh, But one thing I would encourage you to do is study the life of Christ. Study the Gospels and see how often the word truth is actually used. Jesus constantly is saying, I tell you the truth. I tell you the truth. I tell you the truth. When you've done it unto one of the least of these my brothers or sisters, you've done it unto me. I tell you the truth, wherever the gospel was preached throughout the entire world, this woman's deed will be remembered. Remember the uh, Mary who actually broke the alabaster jar of perfume uh, over Christ before he was crucified? I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. Uh, the second law of liberty is to embrace the truth. And we're an icon society. We have a lot of familiar icons you can see up on the screen. Apple's familiar to all of us. I have an iPhone. Uh, I have socks right now uh, that I'm wearing, black socks that have the Nike insignia. What would you say is the most famous logo in Christianity? The cross. There it is. I tell my children, these are logos. This is the logos. These are logos. This is the logos, all right? Logos is the Greek word for word. In the beginning was the word. Uh, Jesus trumps all other icons. So when you think of truth, I'd like you to keep in mind the cross. Did Jesus preserve life? I would say that he did, right? Freedom is about preserving life. Uh, I had a gentleman when we were in North Carolina a few weeks ago. We went to this beef farm, and he had a Bible verse out in his front yard And it said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I said to him, I like your Bible verse. And he said, do you know what it means? And I said, well, I have an idea, but I'd like to hear your interpretation. He said, it means when you hitch yourself to Jesus, he does the pulling. Isn't that fantastic? (laughs) The second law of liberty is to embrace the truth. Now, did our founders reinforce this idea in their individual writings? Uh, I can take you through many passages, and I do in my book. I have quotes from Washington. They're primary source quotes. They're not secondary uh, quotes. But you can look at John Adams, Samuel Adams, his cousin. That's not just the name of a beer, guys. All right. Uh, But here, when you look at this quote, this is what Samuel Adams had to say. Where where did these core principles come from? Where did these rights come from? He says, these may be best understood by reading and carefully studying the institutes of the great lawgiver and head of the Christian church, which may be found clearly written in promulgated in the New Testament. You know what that had caused me to do as someone doing research? I'm diving into the New Testament, trying to find out uh, what is freedom. And so this was the second law of liberty. Uh, If you get into my book, you'll see that I cover, uh, deal with how the relationship of uh, truth influences freedom, how freedom and the relationship of love work together in in greater detail. Now, we get to our third law of liberty. As we come to our third law of liberty, I want to kind of change gears a little bit because the first two laws really have to do with God with us. You know how in, uh, around Christmas time we'll refer to God as Emmanuel, God with us. So remembering the past and embracing the truth have to do with God with us. The last three laws have to do with us with God. So God has acted, and now he wants us to respond. You with me? And the way I'd like you to remember the last three laws, I'd like you to remember them through the good Samaritan, the good son... And the Good Shepherd. When I think of respecting humanity, I can think of no greater passage than the Good Samaritan. If you would turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 10, I'd like to read a few verses uh, from 25 and following. And this is an incredible story. I've, I've actually spoken to atheists that know this passage. Isn't that incredible? One of the most famous stories, I would say, in all of Western civilization. All right? The Good Samaritan. In Luke 10, we have a conversation between Jesus and an expert in religious law. And I want you to pay attention to this. In verse 25, it says, Now an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus, saying, Teacher, what must I do to, inhe- to inherit eternal life? Remember, freedom is linked to life. Freedom is about preserving life. He said to him, What is written in the law? I love Christ. as a great teacher. I'm an educator. He asked questions. How do you understand it? The expert answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. And you can almost imagine Jesus answering the question from this guy that thinks that he knows everything, and then Jesus says, you've answered correctly. And you can almost imagine Jesus walking away, and the guy says, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute. He wanted to justify himself. He says, who is my neighbor? And then Jesus tells one of the greatest stories, I think, in all of human history. And he talks about this scenario where there was a man that left Jerusalem, went down to Jericho. He uh, was met on his way by robbers. They beat him up. They stripped him of his clothes. You guys remember the story? And along came a priest. And you're thinking, hey, this is great. He's going to be saved. Well, the priest sees the man, and the man may be breathing shallow. He's clearly injured. And the priest... He doesn't want to uh, become ceremonially unclean. No one sees him, and so he walks along the way. It's interesting, as I was preparing for this message, I came across some research that says, the more religious a person is, the less likely they are to help strangers. Did you hear what I said? The more religious a person is, the less likely they are to help strangers. See, Christ isn't looking for a religion in us. He doesn't want us to be religious people. He wants us to have a relationship with him. You've heard that before. So the religious person passes by, and then you have a Levite who's a helper. out. He helps in the uh, tabernacle. Same scenario. He sees the guy. And the guy's obviously, you know, he's probably not going to make it anyway. However he justified it, he walks by. And then a Samaritan walks by. And if you know anything about uh, Jewish history, the Samaritans had one parent that was Jewish and one parent that was foreigner. All right, so... Other Jewish people who had two Jewish parents looked down upon these people. Jesus makes this man the hero of the story. It's interesting, uh, when you think of the good Samaritan and you think of Christ and his response to this man who's asking this question, who is my neighbor, I, I would say that Jesus made it clear that Anyone we meet who has a genuine need as a neighbor simply because of our proximity to him or her. Now, this proximity is not simply geographic position, but it's because we were created in the same image. Does that make sense? We're created in the same image. So regardless of the person's ethics, regardless of how they behave, and I would even go as far as uh, regardless how they view you, we still have an obligation to show them the love of Christ, and that's uh, what the Good Samaritan does. I think it's very interesting. The beaten man who was robbed, he was despised of something that, was, that happened to him that was out of his control. I think the Samaritan understood this all too well because he had no control over his heritage. You understand that? And I think there's a good lesson here that uh, we should never despise a person regardless of how far gone we think they may be. God can still use them greatly. So the third law of liberty is respect to humanity. I have a quote up there. I would encourage you to write it down. I believe that a high view of God promotes a high view of humanity. This passage is found in Luke chapter 10. The fourth law of liberty is to control yourself. And I told you I was going to illustrate this with the good son. There are many different examples I could give throughout Scripture. When I think of self-control, I've spent a considerable amount of time studying about the life of Joseph... In Genesis chapter 39. Do you remember the story of Joseph in Genesis 39? Uh, He's the son of Jacob, and it seems like we've created this idea that Joseph's this spoiled little boy about eight to ten years of age, and all he does is tattle on his brothers, and they hate him because of that. Well, if you study the passage, he's not eight to ten years of age. He's actually a 17-year-old boy, an adult at this point he receives this coat, which is an indication to the rest of his brothers that he is going to be the heir. Now, why was Reuben, the oldest son, rejected? Because he had sinned against his father. Joseph receives this coat. It's doubtful that it looked like this, because this array of colors would not have been available. But the best scholarship says that the the coat may have just had long sleeves compared to his brother's coats that did not, and so he became the person that shepherded his brothers, and as a result, when they saw this coat, it was kind of like a white-collar relationship to blue-collar workers. Uh, They may have even seen some embroidery on the coat, and to them, they would view it the way that we might view someone who is an officer in the military. This means that I'm in charge of you. They hated the coat. Remember, the first thing they did when they sold him into slavery, they stripped him of that thing that they hated. And these are his brothers. I don't know how many of you have brothers. I have three brothers. I don't know how many of you have ever been betrayed by someone close to you. But I want you to, I want you to get a feel for this. His brothers sold him into slavery, not really caring what, what was going to happen to him. So he's sold into slavery. There are two times in a person's life when they're likely to walk away from the faith. One has to do when they go through trials. Did Joseph go through a trial? Did he walk away from the faith? Are we guaranteed in this life that we're never going to have suffering? We're not. Okay, so keep that in mind. The second time is when under-shepherds fail us. You know, a mentor falls. Uh, A mom or dad doesn't uh, live up to expectations that we had for them. Uh, a pastor. And thank God for our pastor, just this faithful de- dedication over decades. He, he's a rarity in our culture today. Do you understand that? And, and you need to continue to pray for him. Uh, he would be the first one to tell us, hey, listen, I, I don't want you to look at me. Well, look at me as I follow Christ. Follow me as I follow Christ. I want you to follow Christ. And so Joseph, he never lost that vision. And so when we look at Joseph, yes, he's sold into slavery. He actually starts to uh, gain some seniority as he's working for Potiphar, his master, and people start to take notice of him. I want to read a quote by Tim Keller. He's a pastor in New York City. He says, suffering, because Joseph suffered, are you with me? Suffering all by itself can ruin you, but suffering plus an absolute assurance of the love of God can turn you into something great. If you would turn to Genesis 39, verses 6 through 10 real quick. And I want to fast forward, so Joseph's been sold into slavery, he's gained recognition through Potiphar, his master, in fact so much so that Potiphar recognizes, man this guy has the uh, thumb, the green thumb of greedless growth, puts everything in charge under his authority. But Potiphar's not the only one that recognizes Joseph. You remember the story? You know, we have all these programs today, Desperate Housewives, and I think, personally, our culture has lost its mind, sexually speaking. I think we have more breakups in marriages today because of disloyalty and unfaithfulness, and I think it's it's affected the church gravely. When you look at Joseph, he's away from family. Potentially, he could behave however he wants to, but this is what it says in 39.6. Now, Joseph was well-building, good-looking. Soon after these things, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused, saying to his master's wife, Look, my master does not give any thought to his household with me here, and everything that he owns has put into my care. There is no one greater in this household than I am. He has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. He's trying to say, Hey, listen, you need to be loyal to your husband. So how could I do such a great thing? great evil and sin against my master? Is that what it says? Is that what it says in the passage? How could I do such a great evil and sin against God? God? God's watching everything that we do. Even though she continued to speak to Joseph day after day, he did not respond to her invitation to lie with her. And I've titled this chapter in my book, chapter 10, character, uh, control conceives character. If yourself, if you exercise self-control, people are going to take notice of that. If you exercise self control when no one else takes notice, God takes notice of that. Joseph could be trusted with control over large tasks because he was faithful in controlling smaller tasks. Joseph could be trusted with power over many men because he could be trusted with power over one man, namely himself. In every situation, Joseph unapologetically attributed this ability to his trust in God. I would argue today we could solve a lot of problems in our families, in our churches in our communities, and in our nation if we just realized a man is only prepared to govern others when he has demonstrated the ability to govern himself. Do you understand that? Does it make sense? Self-control. There's a passage about Joseph, if you would turn over, and this is going to be a nice transition for our last point. In Genesis 49, we've looked at the Good Samaritan, we've looked at the Good Son, and we're going to finish with the good shepherd. Jacob is an old man. He's blessing all of his sons. He knows he's going to die at any moment. And he spends a considerable amount of time, I would argue, in front of his other sons with Joseph. And this is what he says in front of all of them. He says, Joseph is a fruitful vine, a fruitful vine near a spring whose branches reach over a wall. Archers attacked him savagely. Who do you think Jacob, the father, was referring to? The brothers, archers attacked him savagely and they shot at him and harassed him. But his bow remained taut and his arms were strengthened by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob, by the shepherd, the rock of Israel. Do you realize that it's possible to go through horrendous tribulation and God may actually use that on this sinful planet, on this broken planet to strengthen you? And that brings us to the last law of liberty, the fifth law of liberty. Daniel Webster, I have a quote by Daniel Webster up on the screen. God grants liberty only to those who love it and are always ready to guard and defend it. I don't know if you realize this, but our individual liberties are under attack in the freest country in the world today. Christians. You understand what I'm saying? Okay. The fifth law of liberty is to protect and serve others. I can think of no better image than the good shepherd. I have chosen this print. Uh, There were many prints that I, I wanted to share with you. There's some very nice prints of Jesus carrying a little lamb around his shoulders. But this gives you the image of the valley. You know, in my mind, goes back to my younger days where I picked up some uh, old King James, I think the 23rd Psalm, and I, I, I read the New Living Translation. have memorized many uh, passages with my oldest son out of the New Living Translation in the book of Proverbs, uh, but I, I can't get past... Uh, the old King James, when it comes to the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley, do you see it? Of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemy. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. When you think of protection, I think of the good shepherd. Uh, Jesus is with us. Now, now I'm going to turn this on you a little bit because Christ turns this on us. I want you to turn over to John chapter 21. I take comfort in knowing that Jesus is the good shepherd. But realize this. He doesn't just simply save us. We don't just come to the cross and then say, hey, I'm good for eternity. He actually gives us a fantastic example with Peter in John 21. And this is what he says to Peter. Now, this is after the resurrection. Can you just imagine this dialogue, this conversation? In uh, John 21, verse 15. After the resurrection, Jesus, uh, it says, then when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these do? Peter replied, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Jesus told him, feed my lambs. He's asking him to be the shepherd now. Jesus said a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He replied, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Jesus told him, shepherd my sheep. Jesus said a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was distressed that Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? And said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus replied, feed my sheep. It's a great study by a pastor in Texas by the name of Bob Deffenbaugh. And he takes you through the 23rd Psalm. And I just want to point out a few things that he says. And I want to turn them on us today. You know, Jesus is my shepherd. He calls me to be a shepherd. And I want, you to, I want you to ask yourself this morning, do you make other people feel safe? Do you make those who are closest to you feel safe? Do the people who are closest to you feel refreshed or do you make them miserable? Well, you don't understand my relationship. Listen, do you cause people to rest and relax around you or are they constantly on edge? As a result of the way that you treat them, that's what we're going to be judged for. A.A. A. Anderson has correctly caught the force of this expression when he renders, and when you look at this passage, he says that Jesus acts for the sake of his rep- reputation, and then he says, the measure of a shepherd is the condition of his flock. Realize, your reputation under God depends upon the condition of your flock, the people that have been placed under your care, your children, your husband, your wife. Are you with me? And as a result of that, we've got to be people that if I am your friend or I am your family member, I need to be loyal to you. I need to have your back. I think that it's interesting. One of the things that he says, he mentions the Bedouin law of hospitality. I'm going to finish with this. He says, according to the Bedouin law of hospitality, once a traveler is received into the shepherd's tent, and especially once his host has spread food before him, he is guaranteed immunity from enemies who may be attempting to overtake him. In pastoral circles, or or shepherd circles, no human protection is greater than that afforded by the hospitality of a Bedouin chief. Listen, you're in the Middle East, and you see a Bedouin tent, and there's a shepherd outside. He invites you in people were pursuing you, you're with the Bedouin chief, you're untouchable. You're granted immunity from your enemies that are pursuing you. Do you do that for people? Or do you become an enemy to those who are closest to you? You know how many problems we could solve in just dealing with freedom if if we would just be loyal to our God and loyal to the people that he has entrusted in our care. It's interesting when you look at this psalm, There were some scholars that said, well, David must have written the 23rd Psalm when he was a boy with the sheep. Uh, However, very few children go through the tribulations that seem to be included in this psalm. And so many scholars believe that David wrote this as a king, just reflecting upon the fact that he had been chased by Saul and facing different dilemmas. And so this is interesting because this is one of the things that Bob Deffenbaugh, he finishes with. The seemingly insignificant tasks... And experiences of our lives are of great importance. Let's do them well. I want us to be people that experience life and experience it more abundantly. That's what Christ wants for us. To do that, I believe that we've got to practice the five laws of liberty. I hope this has helped you today. And I appreciate you allowing me to come and share with you. And God bless each one of you.